everybody, welcome to episode 52 of Literary Disco, Black Hole. Today we're all about aimless teenagers in angst as we discuss a graphic novel for only the second time on the podcast. We'll read Charles Burns' riveting, and I say this with love, disgusting masterpiece, <laughs> Black Hole. But first, it's the teen bookshelf revisit. Todd, Julia, and I will talk about a memorable teen-centric work of literature. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey guys. Hi. Good evening, Mr. Strong. How are you, sir? I'm good. I found it a little hard to think of a teen-centric work of literature. I couldn't... Everything I, everything I kept thinking about was written either for teens, which or was something that I enjoyed as a teenager, which wasn't really about teens. Right. Uh, you know, like, we've talked a lot about how I was obsessed with the Beats which I still associate, like, the Beat Generation books with being a teenager, even though they're clearly written for adults. But I feel like they appeal primarily to teenagers, uh, especially, like, on the road. Um, well, how old were the Beats at that time? They were like, in their 30s, they're... weren't they? Yeah, they were in their okay, 30s. Well... Well, he was, they were in their 20s when they were having the experiences that they were okay. writing about. So um, I, I just saw, yeah. by the way, the uh, the most recent film version of On the Road, which starred... Is it, is it uh, yeah, it was horrible. The, what, what's her name from Twilight? Wasn't it Kristen Stewart? Is that her name? Kristen Stewart. And then the the I think everyone that was in it was German, but using an American accent. It was not. Well, Garrett Hedlund, yeah. who's actually a pretty good actor. So I don't. Know. What I've heard is actually pretty true to its sources. The new Big Sur, which is an adaptation of, of, oh, of his lesser yeah. Kerouac's lesser known books. And I've heard it's 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 one, uh, Mark Polish is the director, um, who's a pretty great director. So. And I've heard it's really faithful, which sounds weird because it's such an intense work of literature. Like, I don't see how it really translates well to film, but I've heard it's good. And it's on Netflix. Oh, perfect. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. Yeah. Requiring no effort. I, I have I have four House of Cards left, so don't anyone tell me oh, what God. happens. Oh, my. Don't tell me. You're going to enjoy that. Don't tell me. You, you, you um, know what I've successfully managed to do, by the way? And then we'll, we should talk about what we're going to talk about. Is I have successfully avoided finding out how season five of Breaking Bad ended. Oh my god! And how this season of House of Cards has ended? I I have no idea what happened in the last season of Breaking Bad. Do you want me to tell you right now? No, don't don't fucking say a word. This, like this is my thing that I'm keeping out there for as long as I possibly can. Like it's the it's it's my white whale not knowing what happened in the last season of Breaking Bad and the last five episodes of House of Cards. So wait, your your white whale, aka your big goal, is to never find out. No, I, I want to watch that them. Doesn't and make sense. I want to watch them and, and and be surprised and enjoy them and then kill them. That's basically. <laughs> that's what it, is that is that what happens at the end of Moby Dick? Does he kill the dick? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, you need to read this book! This is so stupid! You know what? We talk about the same stuff every time, in every episode. At some point, Moby Dick comes up, and at some point, Todd makes a joke about it, and Julia and I roll our eyes. It's our like our favorite book. It's like there's three people that host this podcast, and two-thirds of it, it's like one of our favorite books of all time. It's considered one of the greatest works of the 19th century, if not of all time. And you have never Never read it. You just we need you to read this. Like it has to happen. You know, God, this is so you know what stupid. we should do? You know what's interesting? We now? should do an episode on Moby Dick. Then I'd have we to read do it. Ten episodes. <laughs> <Duh>. Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's I mean, I'm sure our listeners are so sick of hearing about it. I'm so sick of talking about it. <laughs> you, you know what's interesting though, um, now that you've brought it up, Todd, is that 
Moby Dick is not a very spoiled book. You know, like, a, a lot of people don't know the end. You know, like, Anna Karenina, a lot of people know the end. Pride and Prejudice, everybody knows the end. There's lots of given away endings, but Moby Dick, I feel like so few people have read it that there's so few people to spoil it. <laughs> I, f- I feel like, I, well, I saw the movie, and I think Gregory Peck was tethered to the dick as it plunged. Why are you saying it that way? Plunged he around perdition. The whale. The whale. <laughs> He's just trying to piss us off. Don't, don't take the bait. Do not take the bait. I already did, and I exploded. And now I'm, I'm regaining my calm. He'll, he'll spend the rest of his life defending not having read. No, Moby no, I'm I'm gonna read it. And isn't isn't it supposed to be good? So I'm I'm gonna read it. I promise. Oh, the, fuck all right. So here, here's here's the deal. Going back onto topic. All right. I'm gonna read it. The book that I finally settled all right. on. <laughs> That I remembered reading as a teenager, and I have not, I haven't read this since I was about 16, and I have a feeling it doesn't hold up very well, but it's it's a it's a work of literature that loomed large in, in my mind um, at that age, and it's a play called Out of Gas on Lover's Leap by Mark St. Germain. Hmm. Have either of you read this play or no. seen this play? No, not okay, even it's, heard of it. Yeah, and I need to reread it, um, and I've actually never seen a production of it, and this is probably, it's, it's one of those plays that's always getting produced here in L.A., um, you know, because it's it's two eighteen year old characters, so it's really popular for you know young actors like in their early twenties or late teens to to do a, a production of in Los Angeles. Um, I I don't think it was on Broadway. I think it was an only an off Broadway production. It was published in the eighties. It's set in the eighties, um, and it has it, the storyline is very simple. It's a couple, or it's not even a couple. They're they're two friends, a guy and a girl who are friends, and it's their graduation night from high school. And they go to Lover's Leap, which is this, you know, they par- it's a parking spot for couples that make out and for supposedly lovers to throw themselves off of this, um, this cliff. And so the two of them just sit there and reminisce about their high school experience. Um, and I don't want to give away the ending, but it has a kind of shocking ending. Like, everybody in, in acting classes, somebody always did a scene from this play. I think, I don't know, like, I think, Todd, you might really like it because we've talked before about how you and I both really respond to, like, nostalgia. Right. And, like, really, really heavy nostalgia. And, like, this this play has super, I mean, it's all about the two of them at 18 reflecting already, like, it's, like, pre-built nostalgia for their high school years, even though they just got out of them. There's, like, lots, they're both obsessed with Bruce Springsteen, so hmm. there's lots of references to Springsteen's music throughout the play. And I already love it. I'm in. I already love it. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was inspired, I mean, I, because I, I, I read this play right around the same time I discovered Springsteen, so they're really intertwined in my mind. So, like, whenever I hear the line in Thunder Road, um, isn't it Thunder Road that, um, the graduation gown lies in rags yes. at their feet. Yeah, that that line is is this play for me, and I don't know if that's because the play explicitly references it or what. But whenever I hear that line, it's like I always think of these two characters and out of gas and lovers leap, and the two of them up there. And and um, so I, I totally have to reread it before I say everyone should go out and, and read it. It's awesome. But I was hoping maybe one of you guys had heard of it, but um, maybe it's more obscure than I thought. But um, anyway, it's you know it's all about angst. It's all about the teenagers and um, well, fuck it, I'll just ruin it. They they throw themselves off at the end. They 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 kill themselves. Oh. Like these two friends jump, and so it has this very you know like wow you know. But, but for the most part, it's just them talking and reminiscing about. Um, and I'm, I can't remember, but you must sort of start to learn that things are not that great in their life because it ends with them both committing suicide together. Right. Um, 
but it's a, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a definitely like a teenage play. I mean, it's just heavy on the the teenageness. It, it actually sounds like a Bruce Springsteen song. You know, we went to the river and we jumped in. Right. Totally. <laughs> actually, that was more of my. That was almost a Neil Diamond voice, wasn't it? Yeah, amazing impression. Singing voices all blended to one sort of yeah guy. Hey, hey, did Aye. did you guys see? Speaking of plays, that one of our listeners went and saw the play Cock that we talked about yes. several episodes ago, yeah. and and posted a photo of the staging area, which was very cool. I will. That was so cool. We'll have to if you haven't seen it, we'll we'll find it again on Twitter and, and retweet it. Um, but it looked really awesome. If you guys re, uh, go back and listen to our episode on on cock uh and then and see the picture it will change your life it made me want to go see the play i thought that was really cool yeah Yeah, totally what about you julia what's your uh what's your teen angst well um despite being the person who suggested this topic i too had a hard time thinking of something um but i thought of a, a book that i read when i was younger when i was about 10 or 11 and you know I I think a lot of books about teenagers are written, you know, we all read a couple years older than we are. So mm-hmm. um, this book is just an awesome YA book called Maniac McGee. Have you guys ever read it? No. no. Oh, it's such a good book. Um, it's by Jerry Spinelli, who's written tons and tons of YA books. And he's really funny and he's really smart. But this book, um, it's um, it must have come out in the 80s um, because I think it was pretty new when I read it, but it, it felt like it was assigned to like every fifth and sixth grade forever, um, even mm. at that point. Uh, so it's about this kid who moves to a town that's really racially segregated, and he is a runner. I mean, it's basically, I mean, it's very similar to Forrest Gump. He's like, you know, kind of lost, and he just runs all the time, and he ends up like running into these different sections of the town and dealing with all these like racial divides. And it's very angsty, and there's so many teenagers in it. Um, of all different <laughs> racial and cultural backgrounds. Is he white? He's white. Or, yeah. And he's just sort of running. He's white, but I believe he's an orphan. Um, hmm. So he, he ends up, he's basically homeless. He like sleeps in a zoo and then he gets adopted by a black family. And he, of course, <laughs> you know, it's a YA book. So then he kind of ends up like bringing the town more together. I don't remember all the details, but it's just a really great book about, um, teen angst in the context of you know racial and like urban problem angst and it it works really well it's it's such a great way to introduce teens to those issues because they're already there's already so much drama in any in any story centering on a teen that it doesn't have to take like a a long slow dive into the issues it can just get right into it but yeah it's a really really good book I'm, I'm not saying well why it's good but it, it's good because this character is such an observer and he just you know mm-hmm. runs and takes it in and you know we've talked about the loneliness and the long distance runner before imagine that but in an urban environment where he's experiencing all different kinds of people so mm-hmm. yeah, you know you know book. what is you know what's interesting is, um, and I think we might have mentioned this in relation to Pillars of the Earth many moons ago, is that it's really well, only in literature that you run into two things, orphans and mutes. Like, do any of you know <laughs> any orphans? Like, any any orphan at all? No. Like, we all know people who've been adopted, but do you know anyone who was an orphan? Who both of their parents died before they were 17 or so? Yeah. You usually get adopted by your your grandparents right. or some other right. relative, but if you, there's nobody there, then then you're in a group home. So um, interesting. Or in foster care, 
Well, you're just not an orphan for very long. Right. Like, for instance, I mean, I'm thinking, I do know, I do know kids that were orphaned recently, like orphaned a couple years ago, but then they are now living with their aunt and their grandmother. Right. So you wouldn't call them orphans. Right. They were like the orphan identity is somebody who's like has no family, a kid who's like in a foster home. Somewhere. Right. Like there, after both of my parents had died, after my mom died, and so then both my parents were dead. My brother said, "Well." I guess we're all orphans now. And I'm like, dude, I'm 40. I'm not, I'm not an orphan. Yeah. I've just Tomorrow, lived. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not, I don't have to go live with Daddy Warbucks now. I have my own house. So it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, like the, the term orphan is, is, I guess, maybe not something you hear a lot anymore. Either orphan and mute maybe have become different things. Because um, you don't run into a lot of mutes anymore either. It's just, yeah, that's just a kid with autism nowadays. Right, they've just diagnosed why somebody's mute. Like why? But I also think that that's a like a function of literary. It's like amnesia. It's right. really good for characters to not talk in in movies. You know, right. they'll, they'll reveal too much plot. So like, if you have a character that like has seen something. Like, I don't know if you guys watched True Detective. Yes, oh my god. I mean, it was a great show. I loved it. But every time they, like, interviewed somebody who had information, they'd just be like, yeah, yeah, and they would just freak out. You're like, wait, wait, come on, can we just calm down? And, like, maybe after this person freaks out, they'll tell you what they know. But no, it's like, you just lose all control and they can't speak, so we have another two episodes. (laughs) You know what? You gotta delay information by having somebody not speak. A mute is just a, 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 you know, a technique. They could have put... 3,500 mutes in True Detective and I would have watched every single episode. Oh, God, I love that. What do you got, Ted? Well, interesting to what Ryder had said about our great love of retrospect and people looking back on their teen years, I actually picked a short story that I love from Richard Ford's book of stories, Rock Springs. And it is... It is. uh, And it's the short story, Optimists, which begins thusly. All of this that I'm about to tell happened when I was only 15 years old, in 1959, the year my parents were divorced, the year when my father killed a man and went to prison for it, the year I left home and school, told a lie about my age to fool the army, and then did not come back. The year, in other words, when life changed for all of us and forever, ended really, in a way none of us could ever have imagined in our most brilliant dreams of life. <laughs> Boom! Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, That's awesome. It is one of the best opening paragraphs at, I think of any short story in the modern era. I absolutely love that. And the short story is all about that opening paragraph. It goes and tells about that year, 1959, when his father killed a man when he was 15. It is oh, a so brilliant short story. One of the very best. One of Richard Ford's very best stories. Um, and actually... <clears throat> There are several stories in Rock Springs that are told in retrospect from uh, a teenager's perspective. Um, another great one is uh, Great Falls. Um, but then there's also Communist, um, which begins, My mother once had a boyfriend named Glenn Baxter. This was in 1961. We, my mother and I, were living in a little house my father had left her up the Sun River near Victory, Montana, west of Great Falls. My mother was 32 at the time. I was 16. Glenn Baxter was somewhere in the middle between us, though I cannot be exact about it. Oh, man. So good. It is so good. That sounds like something you would write. 
Well, it's because uh, when I was ripping off Richard Ford as a young man growing up, that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I absolutely love those stories. Those openings, I mean, that those opening paragraphs are the things that, you know, teach people how to write, you know. He, yeah, it, it's that perfect, like, understatement, but then, like, bold, declarative, like... Right. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you something that's really honest and from my heart, and I'm, but there's something about the tone of it that, you know, I'm just gonna give it to you straight. Right. But then you just feel this, like, sea of emotion underneath it. Oh, it's so good. Well, it's, there's a lot of confidence in a writer who can tell you exactly what a story is going to be about, and then right. tell you the whole story. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that that's the power of of language. But it's also, I think, the power of these stories that writers write about being teenagers, where things are hard to understand at that time. But when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 or whatever, and you're looking back and you can say, oh, that was the moment that I came of age or that was the moment I lost my innocence or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Those moments that when they're happening are just happening and you don't realize it until you give someone 30 bucks a month to figure out why you're so fucked up that you realize it was that particular moment when your your mother married a communist or whatever it might be. There was one time uh, I taught the story communist in a class. This was years ago. Well, like eight years ago. And so we're going around the room talking about this story. And there's one young woman who is sort of being very quiet. And she was normally very talkative in class about the stories. And so I turned to her and I said, do you know what a communist is? And she said, no. And I said, do you, do you know about the Soviet Union? And she said, no. I was, I was born in oh, 1990, man. and I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. I'm, I'm, now going, I'm now going to kill myself. Well, it's a sad fact. There are some very uninformed people out there. <laughs> and some people true. a lot younger than you. Yes, that is also true. And a lot of them probably are our listeners, and I don't mean to offend you guys. But remember how all the old people around you were scared when we were at the Olympics that the Russians were going to do something bad because they remember being scared of them, and now they're doing bad stuff. This is why. <laughs> you were like, I've been thinking about you with all this stuff going on. I was like, all right, Todd's finally back into his groove. Like, the world is going back into Todd's worldview. It's like they're all aligned. <laughs> yes, I, I could just see you be like, I knew it. I knew they were the evil all along. They just waited to take over Ukraine. Knew it was coming. Hey, man, my family had to escape Ukraine with the Cossacks chasing them in 1919. I got, I got issues. And thank God you got we out. We got out because otherwise you could be in Crimea right now. If, if I, if my family hadn't gotten out, I probably would have read Moby Dick by now. <laughs> That's true. You'd, you'd probably be so much nicer and calmer and more educated. Yes, that's probably all true. That's probably all true. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are now going to turn to a graphic novel called Black Hole by Charles Burns. It was originally published in 2005, um, and Charles Burns is a um, a graphic artist, uh, comic cartoonist, cartoonist, I guess we'll call him. He's done uh, a bunch of short stories, um, and this book was originally published actually as 12 uh, chapters, serialized. He's won a... Pugh Fellowship of the Arts. Um, his other works include El Borba, Big Baby, Skin Deep, 
Uh, little known fact is Charles Byrne is the guy who does the covers of The Believer, the magazine The Believer, which is really cool. I don't know if you guys have ever checked that out, but it's the McSweeney's uh, nonfiction. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah. So he's the one that, because they always have the same sort of style for their covers, and he's the one that does that. Um, anyway, so the book is takes place in the 1970s. It's about a group of teenagers that all uh, live in the same town, go to the same high school, and are slowly being infected by the bug, a weird disease that is affecting them all in completely different and disgusting mm-hmm. ways, uh, <laughs> metamorphosizing people's bodies. Uh, some people are losing their skin on a regular basis. Other people are, their faces are deforming to look like cats. Some people are getting tails. Some people have extra mouths on their chests. It is a very, very strange book. What did you guys think? I thought it was one of the weirdest fucking things I've ever read in my entire life. And I, and I, um, like, I, it took me a while to get it. Like, it yeah. took me the first. I would say there's no page numbers, but it took me like the first three sections of it to really begin to understand what the hell was yeah. going on. And then I went back and reread it and also looked at the pictures more closely. Mm-hmm. I I thought it was absolutely remarkable. And another weird sort of situation, not unlike my friend Dahmer, where I thought the evocation of the time oh, period and of so people... Similar was more accurate than I get like in nonfiction or, or in a film or something right. like that. I, I thought it was really, um, really bizarre. And I have lots of, lots it of big thoughts. It was totally 1970s, thoughts, right? It's just the yes, look and the feel. Absolutely. Like, it was so great. Uh, yeah, it what, took what did you me, think, Julia? You know, it's been such a long time. And you, you guys know, I read a lot of Stephen King and I watch a lot of horrible things on TV. But this book was so disgusting, so disturbing and disgusting <laughs> That I couldn't really read much of it at a time when I, when I started. I mean, I would I would read some and I would just you know put it down, not out of dislike, but out of just t- being totally disturbed um, by someone peeling off their skin from like the bottom of their foot. Yeah. Um, Ugh. Which is like a bad nightmare oh, yeah. I have. I, do you guys have that nightmare like where you're? teeth are falling out or something and you're just pulling your teeth yeah. out or weird yeah, fucking shit like that. Yeah, and a lot of the, and I mean they actually get into it with nightmares towards the end, but you know, a lot of a lot of the drawings are like that. It's like they're a perspective where you don't really know what you're seeing and then it's like a mouth that's in a foot and then that peels away off someone's whole body and that was happening so often that, you know, it it was a slow start for me, but um so I had the same experience as Todd where it took me a little while to kind of get my brain in sync with what was happening. And then I read like the, the second half of the book in one sitting and then I really ended up loving it. Um, but it's so dark and weird that, and it, it starts that way right away um, with you know, these like images of frog dissection and stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, it was really, it was really gross. <laughs> And I, I, as you said at the beginning, Ryder, I mean, that's a compliment. It was really, really, really gross. Right. You know what was actually sort of startling for me? And and maybe it's because I don't read a lot of graphic novels, but there there's full frontal nudity and sex in this. And I was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was not prepared for the vaginas yeah. and the erect and semi-erect penises right, right away. Which is, it was really which is, unsettling. Well, but part of the reason that it's unsettling, the presence of those things with all the disgusting images. Yes. You know, so there's very clear connections being made between a 
you know, cut in somebody's foot and a right. vagina or a, a slice down the middle of a, there's like a dead baby at one point with, it's, like, <laughs> it's really, uh, there's a frog, there's all this frog, there's tadpole imagery. The imagery itself is just, it all blends it together and it kind of blends seamlessly from the disgusting to the sexual. Mm-hmm. It's like so weird. It's, um, there's a point at, where a character has a bad acid trip and you kind of feel like the whole book is a bad acid trip. Yeah. It's like psychedelic. Yes. It's, it's, it's jarring. It makes normal things seem weird and creepy and then abnormal things. It makes them totally normal, even though you're kind of like, no, that shouldn't be normal. That's not normal. Like don't peel your skin off in the middle of the night because it's tight and feels like an extra blanket. But you kind of feel that way, right? Like, we all have felt that way, right? Like, we've woken up in the middle of the night and, like, kicked off something we don't know that we have on. It's just, in this case, it happens to be her skin that she's peeling off. So it's just horrifying and yet familiar. And, man, I just think this book hits the sweet spot of, like, weird artistry that um, I find is is rarer and rarer these days. That something is, is, is strange and familiar at the same time, where it's like, ah... I've seen these tropes before in horror films or, like you were saying, Stephen King books. But this this book deals with them very differently. And it deals with them visually, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderfully. Like, with, like the, the visuals are so good in this. And um, not only are individual drawings so awesome, but um, the framing and the, the storyboard mm-hmm. factor. The way that he's able to, to do things that you can only do usually in film, like pans and zooms. And transitions, mm-hmm. like dissolves, and um, weird perspective shifts within a single shot. He does them all in on the on the page, and it it's remarkable. It's it's to me this is the best laid out graphic novel I've ever read. Even within a within a, a single shot, like I noticed at one point, um, there's a party scene, and our main characters that we're supposed to be watching or narrating are actually in the middle of the frame facing each other with almost their Mm -hmm. backs to us and then other characters at the parties their faces are like right on the left and right of frame like leering at us like they're it's almost as if like the close-up is of characters we're not supposed to be paying attention to so there's all these Mm -hmm. weird techniques visualization techniques going into this book that um you know like would would it's it's the same way that like david lynch uh, frames his movies where you're like something's a little off and you're not sure what it is but it's just because of the way he's positioned the camera and it's slightly moving or something that he's doing a technique there's this very similar technique going into this book there's uh there's a section um it's about maybe a third through in in the part of the book called uh bag action is that what it's called i can, I, I couldn't really read the I think title it's bad name. action Bad action? Oh no no, it is bag no, action. No, it's bag action. By a bag of drugs or something. Yeah, the, right. yeah. So it's uh, our our main character uh, Keith uh, is going to buy some drugs, and there's there's what you talked about, Ryder, a scene where a storyboard where they walk in and it's you're you're in the eyes of the character looking into the room. But the thing that's most incredible about this um, section, this guy ends up getting into a, a sexual situation with a woman with a tail. But it's such a great um, showing of what it's like to be fucked up yes. at some stranger's house. Yes. And then invariably, there's a there's a girl or there's a guy who wants to show you their weird fucked up art in their room. <laughs> yeah. And then you go in their room and their art's horrible and it's fucked up. And you don't know if you want to have sex with that person, if they're going to kill you. And it's, it's a really claustrophobic and strange and... For a scene that takes place with a woman with a tail, 
um, who has this you know violent, horrible artwork, and the guy is you know probably having an outer body experience at the time. It's it's really true to life. It's surprisingly it's surprisingly yeah. accurate to those moments when you're at a party or in a situation where you're like, is this happening? Am I, is this real life? Well, that's the whole thing with this book, isn't it? Like it sets up this invasion of the body snatchers storyline, you know, or you know that 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 there's a group of kids who are catching the bug and they're physically changing and and they're becoming outcasts in the high school and in the town, and there's a group of these people living in the woods together. So you think that that's going to be a a plot, you know, <laughs> that, that people are going to have to fight the bug or find out where the bug is coming from. It's something in the water or whatever. But no, it ends up being a story about just alienation and, like, you know, the teenagers hanging out and, like, that... And, and, and how... And really about how they fall in love with the wrong people and the in crowd and the out crowd, the geeks. And, like, it ends up being just sort of this weird parable for what we all go through in high school. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's like a coming of age book, but it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like a combination of a coming of age, dazed and confused, the X-Men and a zombie movie, yeah. but without the horror factor, really. Totally. I mean, it's, or the it's, action plot. I mean, or the action plot. It's just, no... just people doing their shit. Yeah. And it's weird. It's, I think the, the, the thing that maybe Julia you experienced too is that I kept waiting for that thing where oh my god it goes crazy cannibal it, and it, that doesn't happen. Yeah, no, I mean I didn't expect that uh, because I mean what's one of the interesting things about this book is that characters know that other characters are infected, but and it's a sexually transmitted disease, so you would assume that um, it would become more of a story about. Um, teens alienating other teens and the segregation between people who do and don't have it but it almost feels amongst the characters that we meet that there's an inevitability um to them having sex with each other and catching this thing you know so in that way Mm -hmm. it becomes a much larger metaphor for you know life after sexual experience like i will have sexual experience that is like, my desire to have sex is greater than my desire not to be scarred in some way. And then seeing how that affects each each individual and how they all deal with it. But, you know, there is, I mean, it's not like there's an action element, but there is a, a climactic event yes. that happens. Yes, um, So it's not like yes. they all wander off and, you know, peacefully look out into the horizon. That's true. No. So I'm reading this and... You know, it, it's applicable to teens at any time who smoke a lot of weed, drink a lot, go swimming in the pool, have indiscriminate sex with the wrong people, and then their lives get fucked up. And then they get the clap or AIDS or whatever. You know, bad things can happen. Um, but I'm I'm thinking, okay, if he's going to devote 500 pages or however long this is to this specific period, what is he saying about that time? You know, what is he trying to say about that specific time period i don't know it's interesting because i read it and i my immediate thought was oh this had to have been written in the 90s that was my first assumption because i was like this it just seems so much about aids you know i was like oh this is early 90s late 80s you know aids paranoia you know and then i was like no it was only written 10 years ago um so i don't think i mean i think the sexually transmitted disease factors is I like what Julia was saying, that it's much more about the metamorphosis into adulthood and how you are defined by your sexual encounters, that you mm-hmm. have early sexual encounters. 
And that makes sense to me because so much of this book is about coupling and love and people finding love and being really intense about that and, and falling for the, the wrong person or falling for the girl who's never going to really respond to that. The grossest things about these people that have the bug, the tail or the mouth and the, the chest, um, end up becoming uh, beautiful for the people that fall in love with them. And so I think that there's something I really like what Julia was where Julia was going, that there's something to the just the metamorphosis of like what we all go through as teenagers. And when when we commit to that first act of love, you know, either, you know, I think physically sex or just falling in love emotionally, like how that defines us, that experience becomes who we are. And then we're either going to be shunned for that and you know be told we're gross and awful because we're malformed or we're going to say that that's a strength and that's part of who we are right and graphically it was represented so interestingly so like when we saw characters basically lose their virginity to each other you know their deformities were a version of their partner's deformities but somehow different so you know they're permanently affected by the people that they choose to be with in their grotesqueness and their experience and just their physicality. So like, whereas one person has a mouth, another person has a mouth that, you know, peels, peels the skin off their body or one person has a tail and then one person has tiny tails all over their body, which was a really weird one. Um, we, but yeah. And the weird thing about the, the girl with the tail, the woman with the tail is, and, and, Maybe um, this will be the thing that I demand is cut from the episode later, is that of all of the women portrayed in this book, she was particularly alluring. And I was like, oh, wow, she's super hot with that tail. She's she's making that work. And, like, just the situations that she's in, it's just very charged sexually. And I was like, wow, this is an alluring drawing of a woman with a dog tail. This is a really unusual experience. And... (laughs) There's also a couple moments where it's slightly transgender. Yeah, a yeah, little like, transgender, which I like also found a, super hot. You see the tail in a skirt, and the guy's right. like, it kind of turned me on. You see the tail, like, bulging through a skirt right. and, like, twitching. And I'm like, that, that's that's a close-up of a penis in, like, a really tight skirt. Like, there's no way. What? I thought maybe that was going to go another direction when she, like, pins him down on the bed, face yes. stomach down, and she's like, you saw my tail. Yeah. You liked it, didn't you? I was like, oh, my God, she's going to rape him with the tail. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like in Galaxy Quest yeah. when uh, when Tony Shalhoub gets it. Uh, Ryder, you know what it really reminded me of was, was Geek Love. Yes. There's a very sexy character with a tail in Geek Love. Um, I need to go read Geek it's Love. It's pretty much the same Because that character. is my thing. It's really, really, really similar. Um, yeah, that's I true. bet I could find a website devoted on the internet to women with prehensile tails. Oh, please. One? One website? (laughs) There's probably a convention that gathers in Des Moines. And they they have a name like Tailies. Oh, Jesus. But back uh, back to the book and things from antiquity. Another thing that Burns did that I thought was really cool was remind us of things from our childhood that were mundane that take on larger importance so sandwiches particular kinds of beer commercials Mm. for things that Mm. that i had forgotten about but and and not to harp on the extraordinarily attractive woman with the tail 
but she does something very sexy with a bologna sandwich at one point. <laughs> and there's another moment where one of the characters feels like he doesn't deserve the white bread that he's eating, you know, that this, this mm-hmm. simple pleasure. And it's the, the writing itself, the story part of it isn't, you know, all that remarkable in those sections, but the, the lack of story in those moments when he's dealing with these things from our, our shared experience in his yeah. drawings, I think is really cool. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite parts are just like, like the parents, you know, like I love that scene when the guy is he's trying to get away from his parents who are watching some horrible TV show right. or TV movie. And then he ends up getting in the car with his friends, dropping acid and being like, all right, where are we going? And they go to somebody's house where they're watching the same movie. <laughs> yes, I just so love good. that. Like, so good. That is so, like, bored teenage misery. Like, all right, here we are. We got some drugs. We got some beer. And we're just going to sit here all night mm-hmm. and trip. But there's nothing to it. Like, you're, there's that sense of, like, wanting to be somewhere else but not knowing where that is or not knowing how to get there and having to catch a ride and always being dependent. Like, there, mm-hmm. there's just so much of that in this book that I... I love, and it's also, you know, it's pre-cell phones, which mm-hmm. is obviously like the way my childhood was, and I can't imagine that kids have much of these kinds of experiences in this same way anymore, because they're able to always be online, or always talk to each other, and that that sense of loneliness that and isolation that was particular to um, a pre-cell phone time period, I wonder what that's like now. So do you think that, that teens don't experience ennui? You know what I mean? Is, is, that, is that something that I think they experience like overload ennui. Like, you know, they probably have too much going on or too many friends yeah, or anxiety. too much screen time. Anxiety, yeah, yeah. But I don't think they experience the same sort of like, what are we going to do? I don't know. We can park our car here and just sit and drink. Like, that sort of like, I don't, I mean, I'm sure it must happen. I don't know. I, I, but I mean, that was, that was always, so much like, a part of, uh, that, and that's maybe why this book appeals to me is that that outsider part of your life where, and it doesn't matter if you're the most popular person on earth. Even when you're the most popular person on earth, you feel like an outsider from something. And yeah. it's that parking your car in the middle of the desert, drinking shitty canned beer, and wondering if you're ever going to get out of this town. I mean, it's, it's the Bruce Springsteen song. It's totally. the selection I read from Rock Springs. You know, it's what you talked about, Julia. It's, it's what you talked about, Ryder, in, in the play. It's that longing for basically... Growing up, to have an experience that is not controlled by your parents or by school or by whatever. I mean, you, yeah. the reason you you get high when you're 16 or 17 or whatever is to have an experience that no one else controls but you. And right. it also feels really great. Yeah, to feel that <laughs> something has happened to age. you. Right. To feel that things are happening to you and around you. Right. It's- very well you're you're also it's like you're becoming aware of you could you're finally getting to the age where you can criticize the adults around you and you can see them for what they really are you know or what you think they really are at least you're like oh my parents are not the smartest greatest people in the world oh my teacher doesn't know everything and yet you can't do anything about it yet you know like you don't have the tools to activate this new confidence that you have that the whole world is you know kind of screwed up in some way or that you can change it or that you're and you, so you're in this weird like zone of longing and disempowerment, and you know what do you do with that energy? You know, you end up just doing drugs, <laughs> having sex. But I mean, everyone does that, and I think that's what this book sort of does so well is it shows that everyone 
suffers. You know, all all these people, the most beautiful ones that become the ugliest things, the ugliest things that become beautiful things, they all suffer in some way. It's not, I should note, categorically a happy book. Um, no, definitely but, not. But I, I think it there's an appeal to this and and maybe this is something that we can talk about here that makes me feel like okay this is a YA novel that I wouldn't read if it were a novel but as a graphic comic it's far more appealing to me did you guys have any thought on that I agree I think that the story is is not great but the mood and the feeling of the book was such an incredible artistic experience that yeah, everybody should. I really think everybody should read this if they get a chance. I think it's, it's like a tone. It's just, it's just, it does what a graphic novel only a graphic novel can do, which is set like a, a visual tone and look and feel. I mean, I, I immediately I was like, oh my god, this has to be a movie. And I looked it up, and you know, David Fincher was going to make it at one point. It's been tossed around Hollywood a bunch. But after finishing it, I'm like, no, I don't want this to be a movie. I think this is a really great graphic novel. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think, you know, it's funny just going back to your question of is this a YA thing. I didn't think it was because the the mood is so adult. You know, the plot is barely a plot, really. You know, it's just a hanging together of scenes in a mood. And the mood is not, I wouldn't say it's, 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 it's definitely not romantic, you know, and it's, I wouldn't even say it's even angsty. It's just dark, you know, and I think it, it's very much the view of adults or an adult really looking back artistically on the experience of being a teenager, not a representation of what a teenager thinks the experience of being a teenager is like, or could, or should be like, you know what I mean? Hmm. Like how would a teenager feel seeing this like completely fucked up, um, representation of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? I don't think they would feel in any way validated or excited by it, you know? Maybe they would feel deep momentarily, but I don't think that that it would scratch the itch that, like, The Fault in Our Stars scratches, which is, by the way, and this is what is mind-blowing. It's like, these characters and the characters in A Fault in Our Stars are the same age, you know what I mean? But these characters, of course, to us, seem so much older because they're written by, you know... A true, a true adult. You know what I mean? No, but, well, but, no, what about, like, goth kids, like, that would really want something gritty and and real and hateful in our stars, you know? Sure. I feel like there's a lot of kids, it's not going to appeal on a mass basis, no. Sure, Black Hole is never going to be the, but, I mean, I think that there were always, there were always kids who read and watched things that were a little edgier and pushed the That's envelope true. and and for those kids this will really connect in a way that like i think fault in our stars broadly connects with a lot of people but mm-hmm. and it has probably more mass appeal but but fault in our stars to me is definitely for a younger audience like i feel like fault in our stars is for you know 10 to 15 year olds whereas this book could easily appeal 15 and up with no problem but what the fault in our stars has shown is that it's it's for people in their 50s. You know, it, it's for people that, that cross mm. ages. Well, I don't understand that. <laughs> Those people have horrible I think, we, I think we did an episode about that. Um, yeah. But I, I, it's an interesting question because, you know, it's dealing with these sort of, um, and I, you know, I don't want to say YA constructs, but I guess that's what it is when it's, you know, the alienation of your teen life and when 
things about appearance mean more than they do later on. Of course, things about appearance matter all the time, but you guys know what I mean. So it it mm-hmm. it hits on those easy targets for when you're 16 and feel disillusioned, but it also reminds you of what it was like to be that person. I mean, all of us hold the memory of that horrible, awkward period of our lives. Unfortunately, for Ryder, it's on TV. <laughs> but for, for, for the rest of us... <laughs> Go back and do another episode of it. <laughs> but, you know, for the rest of us, when when something like that shows up, when, you, when, when people do that throwback Thursday thing on the internet and they put up old pictures, I don't ever really put up the old pictures because I don't want to fucking see that. I don't want to remember, <laughs> you know, whatever that horrible depression I had when I was 17 that made me dress like I was the asexual keyboard player from The Cure. I don't need to get back into that. I got, Like I said earlier, that's what I paid 30 bucks a month for. I got someone to talk to about it. <laughs> but this book, you know, it, it forces that sort of recollection. And maybe a 17-year-old doesn't see it as recollection. A 17-year-old reads it and sees it as this is like my life today. So maybe that's that disconnect. Whereas Fault in Our Stars... A 40-year-old reads that, and they're not thinking about their life previously. They're thinking about how tragic it is that this person has cancer and is dying. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, there's there's a weird there's a weird nexus between the two, and then some really vast differences about I think the it's how true. it's written. It's true. Yeah. And he's going to be, incidentally, at uh, John Green is going to be at the LA Times Festival of Books in conversation with my friend David Ulan, and I'm hoping to avoid him at all costs in case he's listened to our show and is mad at me. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> he is such a huge internet yeah. presence. I, I doubt anybody pointed him to. And he wouldn't be mad at me. Our little he, hateful corner of. The he'd be internet. he'd be mad at you, Ryder. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't get him. I don't. And I also bet he'd be pretty nice about it. Oh, I'm sure. See? Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Absolutely. I won't, like I'm not going to hand him a CD of it. Hey, uh, me and a couple buddies recorded a little something about you. Hey, <laughs> I don't think he cares. Well, uh, do we have any other big thoughts on Black Hole by Charles Burns, other than it's uh, a upsetting and stunning graphic novel that um, will fundamentally change the way you feel about long hair and small mustaches? Um, no, the only other criticism I always have is, did it drive you crazy how much the characters looked alike? Yeah, I couldn't tell them apart. That was uh, the real yeah. There was like three characters that, guys and girls, that all had the same hair, and since it's in black and white, it was just like, uh, wait, what? And, and it, it was fine, but it was just like, oh, come on. And he's so good at making distinct characters. I'm not sure why he chose to do that. It seems like it was a conscious choice. And, and then the character, one character finally got a haircut, and I was like, thank you, now I know who he is. Um, but that was a little hard in the beginning, especially since you're jumping through different narrators there's different narrators there's different time periods it's told in a very clever disjointed way um that i actually appreciate the way that it's told is just you know that that's one level of complication to then have characters look alike but it's nothing like the walking dead which has the worst artwork ever i love the walking dead it's the worst artwork ever and the characters don't even look like human (laughs) beings half the time like you can't tell anybody apart it's like wait i thought glenn was asian and then it would be like you know impossible to find glenn on the page it's like (laughs) the one thing though that is true is that everyone in that time period did have that haircut though with the terrible butt part in the middle so that must be what it's about then that they were just he was just kind of sort of commenting on how everybody was trying to look alike. Yeah, they all basically look like the yeah, Bay City Rollers, kind of you know. Sense. They they all had that yeah. same weird haircut. And there's that whole reference there's a whole scene with David mm-hmm. Bowie that like or about where somebody changes their hair to look like David Bowie and they 
they're criticized for it and made to feel like weirdos. Um, so yeah, maybe it all plays into the idea of like before the bug, all these people were kind of trying to look the same, and that eh, plays into the teenage metamorphosis. And the the thing that is is interesting also is that so things like cigarettes, beer, and David Bowie were the things that were transgressive at the time. You know, like mm-hmm. smoking cools was transgressive. And David Bowie was transgressive, and these are, you know, it, it sort of goes to the thing that what was cool and transgressive in your childhood are the things that uh, in 35 years are going to seem like Arcania, you know, it's, yeah. or the things that are now in your bad commercials. Every song that I loved is now a commercial for, like, toner, or <laughs> not even toner, because no, there's no toner anymore. There, it's all commercials for, for, well, it's basically beer commercials and as thunder road popped up in a beer commercial no but there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh you know like jesus and mary chain and the cult songs that end up being like the happy music in the background of a beer commercial and i'm like no those guys were fucking dark they were hooked on heroin don't you understand they didn't love miller white well that's why they need yeah they totally need the money (laughs) keep their heroin habit at bay Got those bills for all those years of destroying hotel rooms. <laughs> they, they, they have the Radisson in Des Moines, $8,000 still. They're actually physically not allowed in Idaho. Uh, second Aww. Des Moines Radisson reference we've made in this show. We'll just title this episode The Des Moines Radisson. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we take on the old Choose Your Own Adventure books. Specifically, the Choose Your Own Adventure book titled Your Code Name is Jonah. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening.